0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhn.com. God makes us a promise about his scriptures, the Bible. And the promise is this from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, in training and righteousness, so that the servant of God, that would be us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every word of Scripture is made by God and for our good. So when we hit a difficult passage like today, we don't avoid it, but rather we work hard to understand the historical context and how it works with the greater story of the whole Bible. And this week, Paul gives guidance to this little church in Ephesus, and the little churches spreading around it in this first century uh, Christianity in the Roman Empire on dealing with how do you live as a Christian and a slave or a Christian and and being a bondservant? Because in their world, one-fourth of everyone living and breathing in the Roman Empire was a bondservant. Christianity spread quickest among prisons and the lower economic classes so that the church of Ephesus was likely half or majority bondservants. This is a question on top of these Christians' minds of what does it mean, me being a bondservant and now serving a greater Lord in Christ, and what does this mean for my life? And there's four things we really have to understand if we're going to get this passage right. There's four key pieces that we got to put together to get what this passage is getting at. And the first thing is that the slavery passages in the Bible are descriptive, not prescriptive in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible are God's people told that they must have slaves or they should have slaves. In other words, the Bible does not prescribe or command or encourage slavery in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Rather, one of the main stories of the whole Bible is the Exodus, where God rescues people, the Hebrew people, from slavery, delivers them from the terrible rule of Pharaoh, and frees them to come worship God with all their heart in the new Israel. However, the Bible does describe a world in which slavery exists. And the laws of God give a way of how God's people should navigate it. The Old Testament sets out laws that permit slavery in Israel, but the laws are to humanize the institution, enforcing Sabbath rest, giving rights, alleviating poverty, among other provisions for the welfare of slaves, and to be included in the community of Israel. And it seems to me these Old Testament laws are like the Old Testament laws on divorce. That when Jesus is asked about him, he says, God made marriage for people to stay together, However, because of the hardness of your heart, it's provided laws concerning divorce for the justice and welfare in a divorce. In the same way, God made work. But when sin makes work fall apart and systems of slavery develop within cultures, God gave laws in the Old Testament around the welfare of slaves so that because of the hardness of our heart of how to deal with it. And now the New Testament commands on slavery they speak directly into the situation of people who find themselves in this system. That they become a Christian and then they say, what do I do next? And we see Paul is shepherding their heart and pastoring them to say, this is how you are to live in this system, the system that you're under and you exist in, but it's not an endorsement of slavery as a practice. Second big thing we gotta know is God created us to be free that God created man and woman in the garden to be free people who worship and work in freedom and harmony together under God himself, that no human should own any other human ever. Because of sin, slavery came. Slavery exists after the fall. Because of sin, we have the evil desire to dominate one another. And tragically, slavery infected every continent on our planet, And in the New Testament, the gospel comes and the gospel makes slavery impossible to continue among Christians for long for four reasons. First, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor and slavery ain't love. Second, 1 Timothy 10 forbids Christians from enslaving anyone or being involved in the slave trade in any way. Third, 1 Corinthians 7 details that in Christ, even if you're a bond servant, Paul says your heart is free to the Lord. You're as if a free man. Imagine the message this was to the slaves where a fourth of everyone living and breathing heard the message that guess who's not Lord? It's not the Romans, it's not your masters, it's not if you were conquered, it wasn't anyone else, that Jesus beats in your heart and that you're actually free now and forever. It was a powerful message that ripped through the empire and subverted all the norms of power. And in that same passage, Paul assures Christians, hey, don't be ashamed if you're a slave or a bondservant or a prisoner or a poor. God doesn't care about that. He cares about you and you living for him. And he says, if you have the chance, pursue your freedom if possible. And last, we have the book of Philemon which details how the bondservant, Onesimus, runs away and he meets Paul in prison. And Onesimus converts, Paul hears his story, and then Paul realizes the former master of Onesimus is Philemon, who's also a recent convert of Paul's. So then Paul hears the story and he writes a letter challenging Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a bondservant anymore but as a brother in Christ, as both men now belong to the household of God. And we see from this story, Christians are to help people be free, period. As God created us to be free and owned by none. And that gets into the very heart of our beautiful gospel that God sent his son, sent his son to free us from sin, free us from death, free us from the clutches of the devil to bring us home and to bring us in, to the family. And we also see in this story, in light of the gospel, everyone must reevaluate their role at home and at work and in society and forbid them to have any part in evil whatsoever. They must walk away from those ways of the world, whatever their former life was. And these are the texts that led to the abolition of slavery in our world. The historically gospel-loving Christians brought the end to slavery across the globe and the work continues. And the third part we need to understand for this passage specifically is why bond servanthood is not the same as American chattel slavery. American chattel slavery, chattel is the word property. American chattel slavery was entirely race and skin color based. It was rooted and exercised by white supremacists to bring slavery to the Americas based on kidnapping, breaking up families, utter brutality and abuse, no education, and was lifelong. However, bond servants in the Roman Empire often served a limited numbers of years. It was not skin color based, and it was often uh, the servants were educated or well cared for and would integrate into the wider society as members of society without stigma as life went on. And this is a very significant difference of why the word bondservant is more appropriate for what was happening in this passage. However, too often I've heard it taught as, hey, Roman slavery wasn't that bad. And it's like, well, let's be clear. Bondservant life could be very bad. Slavery being owned by another person is bad. It just depended on the situation then with the master. And abuse was rampant in Roman times in various ways as well. However, it was not the utter evil and brutality of American slavery. And the last part is the fourth key to kind of understanding how does this passage turn and become very useful to us other than a big history lesson of how it all fits together. This passage has been abused, but it should not be ignored. White supremacists during American slavery used this passage twisting scripture to justify slavery. There may be no greater evil than the twisting of Scripture for evil for another. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly what the devil himself does to Jesus in the Gospels. The temptations of Jesus is the devil taking Scripture and twisting it like the thorns in the crown into Jesus' face. And that's what it is to twist Scripture to evil. It should never be done. And this is why we're spending some time to understand today. So passages like this don't cause mistrust of the entire Bible. Because if we don't rightly understand this passage, it's easy step to think, well, if the Bible gets it wrong on slavery, what else did the Bible get it wrong on? Don't let passages like this undermine your faith because we don't understand. Don't let this passage be stolen. Don't let one word of God's precious Bible ever be stolen from you, period. Fight to understand and see the goodness of the word and the goodness of that word to you. I want you to be able to trust your God and his word forever down to your bones because that's where the good way is. That's what following Jesus is. Even if a passage needs lots of help understanding, remember we're 2000 years, almost 2000 years removed from the writing of this this passage still has a powerful message for us because verses five through nine, they really describe what everyday work is, especially for us, where you have a boss. And right now we're in a wild moment of change in the American work landscape, not just remote versus office or white collar versus blue collar or hourly versus salary, but we are seeing work being debated is either evil or idle more than ever. Work is evil as something to be avoided, something to be cheated, and that any accountability is oppressive. Work is idle as that work is the only way of creating meaning of life. You are your job and this company is a family and all those sorts of things are the language of idolatry. The truth is that the gospel reshapes our life and reshapes how we view and engage in work. God has something to say about your work life. You spend one third to one half of all of your working life, all of your waking life at work. So if God doesn't care about your work, then he doesn't care about your life. And this text tells us God does care about how we work. He does care that work is not evil. Instead, it's made by God and it's part of a meaningful life. But work isn't God either. It can't deliver the satisfaction. It can't deliver the purpose. It can't deliver the salvation that God can. Work is a terrible idol or master. If you die on Monday, the average grieve time of your coworkers is two weeks. Two. If you die on Monday, the average grieve time of your family is a minimum probably two years of intense grieving followed by a lifetime of a gap and a hole in their heart as they continue to grieve you at some level to their own death. Don't let work be your master because it's a terrible one. It's a part of the meaningful pie of life, but it's not the whole pie. Since, See, the gospel reorients us to the true boss and it puts work in its proper place. It's not an idol, it's not evil, but it's important as all we do as Christians is ultimately for God. See, church, the God stuff you do in life isn't just a church or isn't just a ministry or isn't just a religious thing. All of your life is a ministry, including our work. And this is all over the Bible. Look what it says. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. 1 Corinthians 10:31 Whatever you do do all do all for the glory of God Colossians 3:23 Whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord not for men There is nothing in your life that's meant to be unspiritual There's a spiritual way to make dinner. There's a spiritual way to parent your kids. There's a spiritual way to go to sleep on time. There's a spiritual way to work out. There's a spiritual way to honor with your heart in everything your hand finds to do. God charges our life with purpose. It's like electricity flowing through our life that you can honor God in anything. And the gospel tells us that our human boss isn't God, but rather we work to serve the true God, even when we report to a human boss. There is nothing mundane for the Christian. A huge part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s preaching dealt with the dignity of work. Listen to him here. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. You should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, "Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well." You are working before all the hosts of heaven. You are working for the glory of God himself. If you think your job is just too small for you, then the problem isn't your job. First it's your ego. Second, it's forgetting we live before God to honor him. Third, faithfulness in a little actually leads to faithfulness in much, just as our Lord taught. With this in mind, church, let's look at Ephesians 6 again of how to work with Jesus as your true boss. And he gives us five direct takeaways. First, it's work with respect to roles in your life. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. See, everyone has roles in life. Someone who's in charge, someone who's not in charge. And if we don't learn to acknowledge this, not only will we not be employed for very long, but we're really gonna struggle in almost every relationship in life because relationships have roles. There's teacher student There's boss, worker, there's government official and voter, there's coach, player, doctor, patient. The list goes on and on that we have roles to assume in life. And if we sincerely embrace the roles, we can make the relationship thrive. Because we've all been there when someone refuses, right? When the boss refuses to lead and the whole team kind of suffers. Or when the worker refuses to be led by anyone. It just creates chaos among the team. The second thing is work truly, not for show. Verse six, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Everyone dislikes and eventually distrusts a suck up, right? Right? Some of you are like, "What are you talking about? It's you, man. It's you." It's one thing to be respectful and listen. It's another thing to be a people pleaser. It's one thing to acknowledge the role, to work together, to even enjoy your boss. It's another thing to laugh at her every joke and always agree and work hard for him when he's looking and take credit over others. And this is problematic behavior. This isn't playing the game. This is problematic because it's dishonest, it's a shallow attempt to manipulate your boss. It's not just about getting ahead or like playing the game. You're actually being a manipulator. You don't actually believe in what you're doing. And you're actually trying to say to your boss, I'm actually someone else and I'm not that person. And your co probably don't like you either. And Christ is telling us we should live from the heart. And the smallest or biggest things that you can actually do your work from the heart whether it seems silly or trivial on the spreadsheet or or making food in the restaurant, that you can actually live from your heart and say, I'm here to glorify Jesus, to do a good work, to know my role on the team, and to do it truly and not for show. What if your goal for your next performance review was to do the work well, but also have your superior compliment your character? What a beautiful Christian goal that your character would shine as bright as your performance. That they would have to remark upon it because it's so exemplary and it would be weird not to mention it. Third, work heartily, not gloomily. Verse seven, work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Once upon a time, there was a young man named Lawrence He grew up in poverty in Europe a long time ago. Because of his poverty, he enlisted in the 30 Years' War, fought in it, eventually became a POW, got out of it, escaped by about 26, made his way to Paris, and he decided, man, I want to be a monk. I want out of the war game. And he showed up at a Carmelite monastery, and they were pretty skeptical that he wanted to live a celibate, largely quiet life, as a ex-soldier. So they barely let him in. He wasn't an impressive guy. And he served in the kitchen, in the back. Actually, his job wasn't even getting to prepare the food. It was washing dishes. And he would never ascend to leadership after decades of serving in the back. Yet Lawrence discovered what he called the secret of practicing the Lord's presence. He would imagine, but really imagine the reality of, that the Lord was with him washing each dish. The Lord was with with him mopping floors. The Lord was with him as he set out the cutlery. That the Lord was with him in every moment, encouraging him beside him, not far away, but actually nice and close. Even though he didn't get to have any of the cool jobs, he was in the back. And as he grew that he was never alone washing dishes, he grew comfortable in the company of God himself. And over time, his joy and his peace became so notable that other monks and even visitors from outside the monastery wanted to come and just watch this man work because they had not known such peace. They had not known such joy in their life. All their religious striving had not gotten them as far as Lawrence in the back. And they would ask him questions and seek his advice as he had an enthusiasm for work and a peace from God that surpassed all of his peers. Church, Brother Lawrence discovered that God is in the work with you. There's not some secular time where I hit the computer or I show up at the store and then some holy time at Citizens. That all time is divine and that God can be with you in every single moment of your day. That he never leaves you, but we refuse to acknowledge him and invite him in to the work we do. He changed his monastery by coming close to the God who was with him. Leading your workplace in gloom and complaints is submitting to the idea that work is evil, that we just gotta trudge through it. Monday isn't a doom church, but it's an opportunity to shine, to trust the Lord, to enjoy the Lord, and to make your life about God, whether you're doing the job you love or doing a job you hate. Choosing to find joy in God and the gift of work teaches the watching world that we serve something greater than a paycheck. Imagine how beautiful that is when people go, man, he or she just loves to serve in work and they don't seem too worried about how much they're making or not making or what someone else is making. Fourth, work knowing the eternal reward, verse eight knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. Whoa, we got to read that again. Verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. When work is an idol, we are trying to achieve eternal satisfaction in our temporary work. You know work's an idol when you're trying to achieve God-like results, God-like satisfactions in your temporary work. And this causes all sorts of emotional stress that's not necessary. It causes you to worry about your boss's opinion all the time, worry about raises all the time, worrying about calling all the time. And putting a lifetime of fulfillment on a job is just not wise. It wasn't even an option for most of human history. Most of human history, you just did whatever mom or dad did. That was like the only job opportunity you had. This is a totally recent phenomenon, this idea of searching for a perfect job. And church, I wanna challenge you. What if instead of searching endlessly for a perfect job, we instead trusted God's promise here? Look at this promise. If you can work a job that does any good, any good at all in keeping society functioning, that could be processing stuff at the DMV, working at the Hyundai plant, managing a restaurant, waiting tables, accounting, engineering, health, teaching, parenting, sales, service, entrepreneur, farming, etc., cetera, et cetera, Any job that doesn't contribute to evil qualifies for this promise. And if you do good in that job, then God absolutely promises that that effort, that sacrifice, that work for that good will be received back in eternity. That's a promise to bank your life on. That's a promise to show up present to work for. That's a promise to work hard for and say, God, this is a gift for me to steward because you're gonna honor me in eternity for every sweat from my brow. God knows the world is broken. God knows the work can be tough. That's Genesis three. So he gives us a promise to say, hey, you've never wasted a second at work that won't be added back to you in eternity. Whether your job is as important as the president or as small as something that's hard to believe is a job. God is counting. God is attributing your hard work towards an eternal account of reward, church. And we're gonna dive deeper into work this spring that's on the agenda because it's a huge part of our life and there's more, there's whole books we can go into. But today I hope you see hope in the gospel that your work matters to God. But there's a fifth and final key. The gospel reminds bosses, they are not the true boss. Verse nine, masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and your master is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Church, how we treat those below us reveals who we think is above us. You can know in 30 seconds the character of a person by how they treat people they think are below them. If your job carries authority over others, and nearly all do in some way, at least a responsibility to a team or a responsibility to a customer even, we must be wise, be kind, and careful how we exercise our authority for our employer's good, for our fellow employee's good, and for our customer's good. We are never the true boss. And people go truly wrong when they think they're above everyone else. You are heading towards a fall when you really think there's no one above you anymore. It should humble us to think that we all serve the same God and we should treat people with love and respect as fellow humans. And this is the way the gospel shapes our work. When Jesus became the master of your life, he also became the master of your work. Don't compartmentalize your faith. He's your master, not just of your soul but of your home, of your sexuality, of your money, of your work, of your extended family, of your friends, of your social media. There's no part of you that doesn't live under the lordship, the master of Jesus. And we have a master in Jesus who's never harsh in an awfully harsh world. We have a master who calls us to follow and provides a way of abundance in a scary world. We have a master who rewards us when we sacrifice for the kingdom. We have a master that scripture says learned obedience by following his father perfectly. We have a master who wants us to grow at people at work and is described of praying for us nonstop. That's what Jesus is doing for you in heaven right now is praying for you in this moment. Likely praying for you to receive the word of God as his word. We have a master who loves us apart from our performance. (sighs) How many relationships you really have like that? We have a master who lifts us when we fall, a master who cheers us when we succeed. Who wouldn't want a master like that? Jesus came and died for your sins and rose again so that by faith, you can be free, free from sin, free from death free from the devil's scheme, and free not to work for men's approval, but to work for the glory of God alone. A master who will never fire you and plans to enjoy you now and forevermore.